This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. My name's Ian Dunt, and today I'm talking to Susie Boniface, aka Fleet Street Fox, or perhaps I should be Fleet Street Fox, aka Susie Boniface. We'll work that out as we go. Susie's career started at just 18 at the Kenton Sussex Courier. She's since freelance reported for, well, pretty much everyone actually, but is perhaps best known for her Daily Mirror column, her prolific Twitter presence, her anonymous blog. And her books, which include The Bluffer's Guide to Social Media, The Bluffer's Guide to Journalism, and Diaries of a Fleet Street Fox. Hello, Susie. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you, Ian? Yes, not too bad. Not too bad at all. Well, it's ele- I don't know when this is going out, but it's election day, which is always it's, you know, it's that weird sort of calm before the storm where you can't really do anything. You just have to sit and wait for 24 hours before you know that you're going to start working very, very hard indeed. Yeah, and of course, it's going to be later this year because of the COVID counting, which is going to make it all take a bit longer than normal I expect yeah I know well this is you see this is the first time I've been doing it as a freelancer rather than sort of a job like a staffer so it was the first time I was like oh I don't have to stay up all night and then the worst thing happened which is that no one has to stay up all night because nothing's really going on you still don't know what's going on <laughs> exactly it's quite it's quite irritating I wanted to ask you a bit about anonymity I think you revealed your identity was it in 2013 in your diaries yeah 2013 it was the when the book was published so that was yeah front page of the times yeah it, it wasn't one of those things where you you know it wasn't like Banksy level secrecy around your name but you kept into the what was it that sort of made you think well that that's that's enough of that now let's just let's just say who I am <laughs> realism because I um well <laughs> I started doing a, and also just journalism. I couldn't stand the idea of someone else doing it and getting it wrong. So um, when I started my anonymous mm-hmm. blog, I was a staff reporter at the Mirror, and uh, with a name like Boniface, you can't really put your name on stuff and expect people not to remember it. So uh, if I was going out as a news reporter and knocking on doors and leaving my business card and stuff saying, "Please talk to me," then people would just be googling this blog I was writing about my divorce and personal life which kind of all actually happened to me a few years earlier but I was still sort of processing it via this blog and they'd be making judgments on whether or not to talk to the mirror on the basis of you know my love life and what you know I was doing with a couple of boys or whatever so I decided that was a bad idea also it would just have I would have just been fired I would just have lost my job and that would be that because even though it was some fairly dated stuff I was writing about the reputation of the paper would be affected by people saying this is what's happening in the mirror right now this second and it just it just didn't really seem fair to my colleagues it didn't seem like a good idea and I didn't know how well it was going to go either so I kept my name off it and I knew all the way through that it would come out because everyone who's ever written an anonymous blog has been busted at some point I've spent my own time trying to find out the identities of various people who who do anonymous blogs and it can be difficult but it's also uh, it always happens it's just a, a fact of life so I knew it would happen and I also knew when it happened it would be some snide asshole on the Guardian <laughs> writing absolute <laughs> shite you know about uh, and they'd get stuff wrong 
you know, and they'd, they'd just, they'd make up bollocks about things and, and it just, it would, they'd spell my name wrong, they'd put a Z in then Susie instead or something and I just, I can't stand the idea of that. So I thought if I'm going to do it, if it's going to happen, it might as well be me. And in 2012, uh, I volunteered for redundancy at the Mirror because my book, I had a book deal then, I knew it was coming out and my editor accepted the, the offer with alacrity because she didn't want me in the office when that book was published, which is fair enough. Oh, wow. Um, mm. And then, uh, yeah, it came out early 2013 and one of my blogs followers I was quite lucky because I had a lot of people who had profile or were in the industry and stuff one of my blogs followers was the deputy editor of the times and so he said you can have t2 to out yourself and he he let me write my own piece basically did a serialized little bit of the book and he sent a, a very good snapper called David Bever down to we he took some pictures of me in the old bell in Fleet Street clutching a glass of whiskey and looking a bit vampish. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh you know I, I had a great time it was fantastic and uh it was it was fascinating actually I, I tell you this story I probably shouldn't but I heard, I was talking the other day to someone I'm I knew years ago uh and he said do you know what your ex-husband did on the day your book came out and I said no I've never heard this and uh in the newspaper office that my ex-husband was in at the time because he worked in Fleet Street as well, because the book was mostly all about our marriage breakup and, you know, all the various mm. twatty things he'd done. And he was called Twatface throughout, because I, <laughs> I also preserved his anonymity, you see. I was protecting him <laughs> by calling him Twatface. Yeah, yeah no, that's exactly how it comes across. Yeah, yeah and it's also down in history uh, in the British Library, <laughs> well, at least one copy of the book together, <laughs> but he's a twat. Anyway, um this friend of mine said, well, he rang up that day and called in sick on the day it was on the front page of the Times, because obviously the papers broke the night before on, tw- on Twitter. And he called in sick and the news editor said to him, why the fuck are you calling in sick? Fucking come into work, you <laughs> and, <laughs> and he said, I can't come in. It's all over the papers. People will be talking about it. I said, he said, come into work. And he had to go into work. And every time uh, he was sort of in a, in a managerial position, shall we say, I don't want to identify him. Um, and every time he went up to a reporter and said, um, I'd like to talk to you about a story, the reporter would put their feet up on the desk, flick the Times newspaper that they were reading and say, fuck off, I'm reading the Times. There's a <laughs> and the, the newspaper rack in the office was just cleared out of copies of the Times. And he would go up to reporters repeatedly during the day. Can I talk to you about the story? Fuck off. I'm reading the Times, <laughs> which I thought was hysterical. I'm sure he didn't, but it's worth I mean, it. That alone. <laughs> is there anything you miss from that from that period of anonymity, or was it kind of quite refreshing when you could just sort of just clear it all off? It both, really. I do miss it because it gave, it gave you a certain freedom and leeway when you're a reporter. Everything you do is representing a newspaper. What you do means people judge the newspaper or your media outlet of some sort, whatever it is. They judge it differently. And it affects the reputation. It affects the stories you do. It affects the stories other people can do. Lots of reporters don't give a toss about that. I always did. But you also, you don't have the right to an opinion. You are more objective. You are, you put what you think to one side and you're interviewing this person, whether you think they're an absolute wanker or not. You're trying to get the story out of them. So you're being as nice as pie, right? Or you're using various techniques to interview them. But when you are anonymous, you're, I was able to express a view. I could say the prime minister, whoever it was, is a moron. 
you know, I could say this is how this story is going to pan out. I could, I could express a view, and I, I got addicted to it. I loved it. I'd been a reporter for that point by for I don't know fifteen odd years, and I'd never been allowed an opinion, and to have one finally was very very welcome so after the book was published that blog disappeared I started doing another one that was about uh sort of you know politics the news story of the day kind of thing and obviously it was still Fleet Street Fox but everyone knew my name by that point and then I sort of started the column for the mirror and it's just it's my it's my job now is expressing an opinion which is very welcome it must be said after 25 years of not being allowed one really yeah I mean you went into journalism incredibly young right you were just just 18 when you took your first job Officially, uh, unofficially, I was 11. <laughs> I, I started uh, I started work on that. We set up a school newspaper at primary school. Then we set, oh. up an, I set up another school newspaper, Lower Sixth. I had work experience in a photographic lab when I was 15 because I, I wasn't allowed to go to the newspaper until I was 16. So I had, photo, I had photographic de- film developing experience, which, of course, has stood me in brilliant stead with the advent of digital cameras. It's really useful, that was. Um, <laughs> although I, well, I was able to talk to photographers at some length about deving film and chemicals and, you know, trying to dev film in, in air, airport toilet cubicles and blacking out the light and stuff like this, things they used to do back in the day. Anyway, uh, and then I did work experience at 16 at the local paper, and I just kept going back every summer holiday, every every half term. I'd just go for more work experience again and again and again until they got fed up with me. And then they gave me a job. I did my last A-level on the Friday. I did my last waitressing shift on the Saturday. I took Sunday off, and I started work at the local paper on Monday morning. I mean, do you remember what inspired this? It sounds like you basically wanted to do this job from before you were aware that you even wanted to do it. Uh, probably, I'm probably just I'm probably just journalist shaped to be honest. There's no one in my family that does it. It's not like it's a, a trade that runs in the blood or anything. I do come from a long line of dissenters, so I don't know if that maybe makes a difference. But um, no, I, I can remember in 1989 watching the Berlin Wall come down, and there were people. You know, I, I remember as a kid, you know, being aware of about you know, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear annihilation now and again, the Soviet Union stuff. And then 1989, people just marched. People just went, sod it. We're not having this. There was a series of cock-ups within the East German High Command and people just marched on the wall and they took kitchen spoons and garden spades and they just physically attacked it themselves. Uh, I remember watching the uh, the news and Kate Ad was stood there in front of the wall and there's people yeah. behind her attacking this sort of symbol with their bare hands and garden implements and I turned to my mum and I said that's what I want to do and she sort of said what you want to be on a wall with a spoon and I said no (laughs) I'm I'm going to be a journalist I'm going to tell people why things like this matter and and what it means because it's a long way away but it's still inspiring to see that sort of stuff and it still affects you know daily life in other ways um and she went right okay but, you know, the day before I'd told her I wanted to be a fighter pilot like Tom Cruise in Top Gun. So obviously I was full of shit. But that, that one did actually last and stick. And then, you know, it was just a case of me deciding. So I was, what, I was 12 then? 
And then Mandela the next year when he was freed. I loved all that. And I used to just soak up. When there was a big event like Diana's death, I would keep copies in the newspaper under my bed. I've got huge piles of them going back for, you know, for events and things. It's just it's just me. I don't know. I can't. I can't it, it is me now. It's not what I do. It's what I am. And I think that's true of most journalists, to be honest. Do you have sort of a top three tips for aspiring journalists? I mean, you, you wrote Bluffer's Guide to Journalism sort of a couple of, was it a couple of years ago now? Uh, um, yeah, have you narrowed it down to three things? I know I always remember when I was sort of like wanting to be a journalist, every time you met an older journalist, they would just come with a sort of doom laden, oh, you don't want to do that. There's no chance for that. It's all a dying industry. And I just remember thinking I was just a bit like, oh, fuck you. I don't really like <laughs> I, I, It always felt like they were just trying to make sure you didn't go into it. There's some good sort of psychological work there, because if you can survive a journalist telling you not to bother doing it because it's a waste of time, then you probably are absolutely perfect for the job. Um, but it's been a dying industry since 1702 when the first newspaper <laughs> right the daily current which was just a, a basically a, a sheet of a4 was printed in a room above a pub called the white heart in fleet street and it was published by someone called e mallet which may be an edward mallet and maybe an elizabeth mallet i think it was probably a woman that is elizabeth mallet let's say but she sold it after one issue having decided there was no future in it whatsoever so pe- people in journalism have said it's wank ever since they started doing it because that's just the nature of journalists to be pessimistic I think but you know now we have online we have more readers than at any point in human history you know Dickens or Johnson or Defoe would kill for the number of people that I can reach with just one column on a on the Daily Mirror website and that's not even the most popular website so I mean you know we have billions of readers out there it's it's a great time to be a journalist but my top tip would be probably uh, I remember doing a lecture at Kingston University a few years ago and, you know, you just sort of tell a few war stories and you, you tell them to take self-defence lessons and stuff like that and watch out for rapists. And then I, was, I left the thing, I said goodbye to everybody and I was walking up the road and one of the students came out after me and she said, how do I be a journalist? And she was, I was telling her various things about what I'd done, blah, 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 and maybe get work experience, do this, do the other. And she just followed me and peppered me with questions all the way up the road. And I really wanted to get rid of her because she was super annoying. And we got outside the entrance to the tube station and she kept saying, how, what do I do? But how? But when? But how? But why? What? what should, who should I? And I said, this, this is all you have to do. Because if Adam, mm-hmm. you've annoyed me, you've bothered me with questions, you haven't taken anything as an answer. There's constantly more stuff to ask. Every time I've given you an answer, there's something you've picked a hole in. And out of the 200 students that I've just spoken to, you're the one I remember. And you're the one I would trust to go after a story. You're the one I would recruit if I was running a newspaper. And that did finally seem to shut her up. So I would say that the, the best way of being a journalist is just to be a journalist. You've had a lot of success both in Fleet Street and in blogging, which it feels like the same thing, but the, the words have a very different kind of tone to them. Blogging is usually sneered at quite a bit and Fleet Street isn't. I mean, what do, do you think there is a difference between these two things? Is there even a cultural difference? Is there a difference in writing style? No, none whatsoever. It's, um, I mean, you have to think about slightly <laughs> different things. You have to think about, you know, URLs, search engine optimization and stuff like that. But, and I, but I didn't get taught. It's the same. I had the same experience writing online as I have done writing in newspapers, which as I had no idea how to do it at all and learn on the job. 
So the fact I was doing my own blog for a while, I had to build my own website. I had to tinker with stuff. I had to work out what times to post links and who my readers were and how to interest them and what worked and what didn't. It's exactly the same process as working on my first local paper and chasing down stories and working out which stories would work and which ones wouldn't and which ones should be a page lead and which ones were nibs. It's exactly the same process. I mean, fundamentally, it, there isn't anything that we do online that we don't do as journalists anyway. I mean, there's a, I can't remember which novel it was now, but Charles Dickens, when he wrote some of his books, he used to write them in um, installments. So there'd be a few pages, you know, a chapter or two that would be released at a time. And there was a story I had, I think it might have been Little Dorrit, I'm not sure. But one of his novels, when it got released, the the pages all got sent on a particular ship and they landed in New York at the harbour at a certain time. And there was a riot. People were gathered there waiting for it. And it was the fact they had to wait that made it more interesting and better. If you can sit down and read the whole book, then obviously you put it down after a bit and wander off and do something else and then come back to it again. But when you're only getting a chapter at a time, you have to you have a regular thing, you have to hit that deadline, you have to push it out, but that builds the interest, that creates the the thing and that's what I tried to do when I was blogging was I, I did a chapter every Friday and it's not I didn't have the same thing I don't think I ever once started a riot but it was it was just a case of people knowing that you'd have that there that day that time and what kind of content it would be and it's the same with a column in a newspaper they perform exactly the same function it's a regular thing on a certain day by a certain person that you know is going to be a certain kind of uh, content or certain kind of journalism and it attracts you to buy that newspaper on that day if you like whoever it is Richard Littlejohn or Liz Jones or Robbie Savage whoever it is buy the paper on that day to to read them you know or you listen to a podcast because it's one of your interesting columnists so it's just it's absolutely standard normal journalism there's a slight difference in the language like I often find myself like even if I say you know there rather than they are or something that there's something like I have more of an instinctive chattiness to me if I know it's going on a screen then something about that happens in your head of thinking it's going to be printed on paper makes it feel more for the ages which of course is fucking nonsense because a newspaper no one gives a shit about yesterday's newspaper let alone one from a year ago and then similarly no one's reading a blog from a year ago it encourages a sort of kind of chattiness that makes a slight difference to the language. Yeah, but that's because it's an intimate medium. Yeah, people are reading you uh, when they're in the queue for the bus, when they're on the toilet sometimes, when they're just chatting to someone, when they're skiving off work, and you're right up in their face. So you're in their personal Mm. space. And uh, that's Mm. why, you know, trolling has such a devastating effect. It's when um, you can write something that really matters to somebody. I've had more letters about affecting people's lives since I was blogging than I ever did when I was writing in newspapers, I think. But uh, newspapers are more formal and they have some style things which doesn't work online. You can't do a newspaper pun online. You can't have a punning headline. It doesn't work in the least. It's a complete waste of time. But Mm. the one thing that is the same and it would be nice if everybody could remember it, is that when it is written down, the human mind has been bred over millennia to think that black and white means fact. And once it's written, that is true. And it comes from, I heard a theory once that it comes from, um, I think it's Babylonian tax collectors, right? So when the, the first, very first people who ever wrote were the tax collectors, back in the cradle of civilization, mm-hmm. and they had their tablets and they carved down how many shekels you owed them or whatever. 
And that was that was just fact. And in the thousands of years since then, most human beings think if it's written down, then it's true. And you can't argue with it uh, because that was how tax collecting worked. And it's the same whether you, you write online or whether you write in a newspaper. People don't have the same attitude towards the TV news, interestingly, but they, they do when it's online. You're, you're a publisher. You're capable of defamation. Yeah, you can be more chatty because it's a more intimate space, but you have the same rules, regulations, public responsibilities as you do if you're writing in a newspaper. And that that applies to not just to journalists, but to the average human being who's writing online as well, as a numerous number of defamation lawsuits can attest. (laughs) Do you think it's it's more cynical at the moment with, with journalism? It feels that way. It feels like there's this real sort of animosity towards journalism. This could just be me spending too much time on Twitter, but it certainly feels like there's a real sort of aching distrust and vitriol towards journalism that wasn't there before. But like over your years, is your experience basically that it's always been there and it's just the same now or that actually things do seem to be getting worse? Yeah, and I'd say that it's been there since before the invention of printing, probably, or the, the invention of printing. <laughs> as soon as, because what used to happen, right, when um, when the, the first leaflets were printed, when Caxton invented movable type and uh, imported that into London, the stuff that was put out was scurrilous, it was gossip, it was about celebrity aristocrats, and most of it was absolute bollocks, you know, it was... It was who was having an affair with such and what the king was saying to so-and-so. And some of it might have been true, but most of it was shite and it was done for political reasons. So it was entirely distrustworthy. There was Because you had the star chamber then that regulated the press and there were slightly different rules about defamation and things, there weren't very many ways for chasing this down. And then things changed and became more regulated as time passed. But that sort of disreputable reputation but how can you have a disreputable reputation uh but that that disreputable (laughs) nature of journalism of writing stuff down you know just writing stuff down was a disgrace because it wasn't in the bible therefore it was bad you know Mm. so that just has carried through and nothing has changed in my 25 years it's the same as ever it is i think perhaps why you might be feeling there's a lot of animosity is because of the nature of social media and people you know, go tap, 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 and are taking it out. And um, what they say on social media is not what they say to your face. That's interesting. I mean, for instance, I mean, the last few weeks, I think, have been quite revealing in this regard. I mean, I was, you know, because you really got a sense where, during the sort of corruption stuff against Boris Johnson, where, you know, the press were pretty almost universally sort of covering these stories. You had, uh, I mean, it really struck me that you had a point where you got the political editor of the BBC putting something on on the BBC homepage saying, is the Prime Minister a liar? Which seems to me an absolutely damning point to have got to for a government. And yet most of the response that I saw online was criticising the journalists for not being strident enough, you know, in in the copy. And to me, that does seem, and you're probably right that it's probably just the medium of communication that makes it feel more vociferous than it was before. But But it does seem like no matter what is going on in journalism, no matter how much criticism of the government there is, it feels like a, a, a huge part of the sort of daily conversation is attacking the journalists for the manner in which the coverage is done. Yeah, well, if I was Laura Kunzberg, I'd be delighted someone had read the copy. You know, I'd be thrilled. Someone's read it. Hooray, I win. Um, but there is, it doesn't matter what a journalist does, you'll get attacked by somebody. Um, you have to develop a fairly thick skin 
so when, whenever people ask me about trolling and stuff like that, I say, look, I'm just the worst person to ask. I've been attacked by people wielding lumps of wood. I've been shot at more times than I can count. And don't ask me how it feels to have someone send me a tweet. It's a pleasant relief. <laughs> I just I just think they do attack journalists no matter what you do. But so long as you just keep fighting the good fight, then, you know, occasionally you get a thank you. And it's that one tiny thank you in a sea of vitriol, which actually makes it worthwhile and you get out of bed again and do it tomorrow. But like I say, it's it's because you're accessible now. Journalists, you used to have to write them a letter. You had to find the green ink. You had to do a poo. You had to wrap it all up carefully, <laughs> put it in a bag, find the address, mm. get it stamped, go to the post office, right, And in order to send them some abuse. Now you haven't got to do any of that. So you can just go, ah, you're a wanker, send, and then forget about it. And you don't realise uh, that maybe it's the 75th time that's happened to them that day and it's a bit much, frankly, or that, you know whether they care, whether they don't care, whether they've muted you, you know, you have no idea. So I really, uh, again, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about it, but I, I would, I don't sweat it too much. There's very rarely that someone can really get my goat on social media. I mean, you've written a book on the Bluffers Guide to social media. Is there, is there really nothing... Is it really just as simple as that, that you're just sort of largely unaffected by by stuff that you see on there? Or, or is that something you have to work on all the time? You have to work on it. There's some stuff you're more affected by than others. And there's some things that I just do not stand, full stop. And, you know, anyone who's who uh, is really personal and snide and that I would say to them, uh, take that back immediately then if they don't do it, then that's it. They're just, they're blocked. Because if there's someone who's going to bring you down and all they're going to do is tweet you abuse or something, then block them because you don't need it in your life. And, you know, they, the thing that I always try and say is you have to treat it a bit like a bus stop, right? So one of the bits in, in the book is saying you have to use the rules of the bus stop. If you were stood at a bus stop, would you say that to someone else at that bus stop? If you were stood at a bus stop and someone said that to you, would you A, call the police? Would you B, catch the next bus? Would you C, get in a fight with them? It's just a case of trying to remember um, there is another human being who sent it to you and that you're a human being and you need to remind them of that sometimes. Because one of the things that's very useful, you know, when you're a journalist and you're knocking on doors, people can react very violently sometimes, not very often, but occasionally. And the best way of, of resolving that was always to, um, you know, if you were wearing sunglasses, take them off so you could make eye contact. The best way was always make eye contact and say, my name's Susie. That just stops people in their tracks because once they, you are humanised and once mm. you become a, a person, they do tend to calm down and they will discuss things with you more sensibly. But if they're not going to see that, then you have to stop and ask yourself whether you've really got the medical qualifications necessary for dealing with them. And if not, then block them and you know encourage them to take their medication. I'm trying to work out your your bus stop analogy. It's just as a Londoner, if anyone said anything to me at a bus stop, <laughs> it doesn't apply I would to night buses. <laughs> it doesn't apply right. to night buses at all. If it doesn't apply to night buses, but yes, if anybody talks to you at a bus stop, generally it would be weird. But you would always be polite. You would always be mostly civil and go, well, that's incorrect or that's not correct. If you heard someone saying something just absolutely wrong about Brexit or Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer, you might pipe up and say, no, that didn't happen, you know, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't F and Jeff at each other <laughs> quite as much as perhaps you would do on Twitter. Susie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
This has been the Bunker Daily. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday with a main panel show on Tuesdays. And our sibling podcast, Oh God, What Now? comes out on Friday. Don't forget, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more. See you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>